Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Red Bull Racing wins the Constructors' Championship after a Max Verstappen masterclass in Suzuka. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato, and this is Round 16, the Japanese Grand Prix. Max Verstappen was so fired up by his defeat at the Singapore Grand Prix that he set himself a 20-second target for victory in Japan. He fell short by just 7 tenths of a second. Verstappen could do no wrong in Suzuka. After taking pole by almost six tenths of a second, he blitzed the race to claim the team's sixth constructors title. McLaren's Lando Norris and Oscar Piastri completed the podium in one of several teammate battles that gave the day's racing an added edge. And on a day dictated largely by who could squeeze the most life from their tyres, drivers who could play the long game tended to win big. To talk us through an interesting Japanese Grand Prix everywhere except the lead, I'm joined by correspondent and presenter for F1.com, Lawrence Barreto. Lawrence, it's good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too, Michael. And how often have you used that intro this year, where you've had (laughs) battles everywhere other than the lead? It's actually just pre-recorded. I put that in. The intro is actually the same in every episode. So it's made it nice and easy. It's about a one minute time saving. Works well for everybody. This race is a little bit different, I guess, Lawrence, because a championship was decided here. Very much like it was last year. Constructors title was decided in Japan in, I want to say, very emphatic fashion. It was very emphatic fashion for Max Verstappen. Sergio Perez, we may or may not talk about later on. (laughs) Uh, But let's talk about Red Bull just briefly to start this one, because... It is a track that feels like it is absolutely a Red Bull track. Max Verstappen also goes really well around here. As a result, Red Bull's tied up the Constructors' title earlier than anyone ever has. What's changed between last year and this year for Red Bull? Is it simply just that the car is better or have they all together found another level, do you think? I think it's probably a combination and now I sound like a team boss. But um, <laughs> ultimately, I think it's it's for multiple reasons. I think that... Um, I think the RB19 is probably the best car that's ever been built in Formula 1. Mm-hmm. I think Adrian Newey and his technical team are understanding that car better than ever, obviously, from race to race. I think when you're winning and the pressure's off, you can focus on little details a little bit more easily, and they've just been afforded that opportunity. I also think that Max, because he has literally no pressure on his shoulders, <laughs> he is just he is able to push in a way that I just think we haven't been able to see maybe there was a couple of years when Lewis was dominant at Merck but even then he always kind of had Rosberg or Bottas there but not in living memory have we seen a driver have such such capacity to just really just focus on being as fast as he can be without really worrying about (laughs) anything else on the racetrack like racing and I know Singapore (laughs) was like I know that sounds terrible but like that's kind of what's happening in the minute isn't it that Max is just so Max is so brilliant Red Bull is so are so brilliant that they are just entering races aside from Singapore knowing that as long as they operate even at 70 or 80% they're going to win 
and then they've got that extra capacity to just go crack on essentially and watch everyone else fight behind them <laughs> now if we take as assumed that the rb19 is kind of like well it is the best car of this regulatory era but assuming it's sort of the ultimate form that can be made in this era obviously it'll develop over the next couple of years but for where we are just hear me out uh suzuka circuit is also a track that really suits these rules right like it's the kind of track similar silverstone similar-ish to Spa, although I think the long straights make that a little bit more of an asterisk in this regard, but it is one of those tracks that these regulations really suit very well. What is it that works so well, I guess, for a track like this and these cars that means we're able to get when someone like Verstappen and Red Bull Racing are really on song performances that are pretty much flawless? A lot of it is just down to downforce, and effectively the RB19 has much more downforce than any other car. You kind of see drivers come to circuits that aren't in a Red Bull and that's all they ever ask for. You know, they, they just say they just need more downforce. They need more grip. Um, and mechanically and aerodynamically, the RB19 is just a fundamentally better machine. So it means that when they're going into these fast corners, these fast sweeping corners, these fast changes of direction, particularly Max has just so much confidence in the car that he can maybe break a little bit later keep on the throttle a little bit longer just because he's got the absolute confidence that the car is going to be brilliant through there and do exactly what he wants it to do and Christian Horner talked a lot about how great that qualifying lap was and he he often uh, uses a a, a plethora of superlatives (laughs) to describe Max and you might think it's over the top but actually this time around I think he was right like I do like watching that on board and I've watched it several times now it is phenomenal how he is pushing every single second of that lap and he is using parts of the circuit that others aren't and he has absolute confidence that by using that part he's going to be quicker even though he's technically going say further uh, he's driving further around the circuit almost Mm -hmm. so I think when you've got a driver who's in that mode who's got that comfort to be able to do that and then he has that car that is able to just get as much speed out of the circuit as it as is possible that's what you get that's the end product you get a qualifying lap that is that mega you get a red bull that operates on that car and makes everyone else kind of look like they're well off the pace i just want one more point on max verstappen before we move on to actually things that happen in the race because ultimately max verstappen doesn't so much happen as he just is it seems like in this max verstappen red bull era but the, that matching of car and driver i think is is really worth drilling down into just a little bit because i thought it was interesting christian horner after the race said max was really fired up after not only losing singapore but the questions around why the team lost was it a weakness found in red bull was it to do with that technical directive all that proved obviously to come to nothing but christian said that max aimed to win this race by 20 seconds and he did that almost exactly i think he missed out by six tenths of a second something like that um very very close now some of that i'm sure is actually just coincidence considering we had safety cars and blue flags and all kinds of things that you can't really calculate that kind of thing but how like what do we read into max's mood this weekend it's something i thought that was really interesting because he did admit which i was surprised by that he was kind of worked up by the last week turns up doesn't show any pressure in that sense but just obliterates everybody how much of that margin is him versus the car well i think it's fair to say he and the team have been pretty disappointed all year that they don't seem to be getting the plaudits that they feel they deserve for the quality of the job that they're doing Mm. so that you know the level that max is driving the quality of the car that red bull has so obviously when people were kind of having a go at red bull in 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 singapore and kind of threatening saying that technical directives you know had had um had an impact on their car i can see why max 
took it as a personal affront and wanted to kind of really throw everything at it in Japan. And even that first lap out in uh, free practice on Friday, when actually nothing really mm-hmm. matters, he just thought he'd go and just nail it because he can. And I think that he he is the kind of person who wants to send messages out, I think, like that, because I think he feels like he's doing a great job. He thinks he is the best, obviously, and he just doesn't feel like he's getting it. So, um, I mean, I've just started talking and now I've forgotten what the question was. But um, <laughs> No, I like it. But, but, but ultimately, I think that weekend was about Red Bull and Max proving that they are doing everything legally, that there is nothing that they're doing against the rules, and that they are just doing the best job and they want that respect. And I think that is why it was so important to Max particularly to show everyone that actually it's not just the car as well, it is him. Because I know Checo hasn't had the strongest season and so therefore it might look, it's maybe a little bit harder to applaud Max because of that, because maybe the gap is just bigger because Checo isn't delivering. But I think Max wanted to go out and show that it isn't, you just don't turn up and just because the car is the best, you win. And I think doing things like that, you know, pushing to have like a 20 second lead or, or just when he gets clear air, pushing and making a gap almost instantly or going and setting a qualifying lap like that or just going and dem- um, absolutely destroying practice. I think it's those things that he does have an impact on. And I think this weekend was a weekend where he just wanted to consistently prove that. I think that's really well put. It is something sometimes a little bit understated about Max. Like he just likes driving. He's pretty straightforward in that sense, but I think he does feel some of those things. Uh, The battle for the lead, that was it. There was no strategy for it. He was just really fast. It's good old fashioned being the fastest driver in car. But let's talk about the battle for the podium. Slightly more interesting because McLaren was really competitive here. We'd sort of forecast this because of how well the team did in Silverstone. There have been more upgrades since then, including some applied in Singapore last week and then to the, the second car of Oscar Piastri this weekend. Both were really competitive, extremely evenly matched in qualifying with Oscar Piastri just ahead. Lando jumped him, jumped him at the start. In fact, almost got the lead very briefly. I think he said for half a second he was in the lead and then they resumed second and third. Positions were switched, partly thanks to the virtual safety car and Oscar Piastri getting an earlier stop. But then after that, it was really all one-way traffic to Lando Norris, wasn't it? He turned what was something like a seven-second deficit after the first stops into what was, again, almost for himself, a 20-second advantage over Oscar Piastri. This was a real tyre degradation race. It was really hot, unusually hot, I guess, because we're a little bit earlier in the year for Japan. Uh, it was all about managing those tyres. How much does a result like this show how much experience counts in Formula 1 with these Pirelli tyres in particular when we're looking at that gap between Lando and Oscar? Yeah, I think it definitely shows experience counts. And we've talked a little bit about how Max has been so good around here. It's that experience that allows him to open up that gap and extract the most from the car. And I think for Lando, that was exactly what happened here. He obviously had the upgrade a race earlier so he would have had a bit more of a feel for the car and I think having a a good feel for a car around Suzuka where here you need to kind of the the inches and and the millimetres count even more I think that would have given him a slight edge over Oscar I think Oscar admitted that he he just didn't quite have the pace to match Lando but let's not forget he's what 15, 16 races into Mm -hmm. his Formula 1 career so I think we can probably forgive him for that but I think tyre deck was a talking point very early on Friday afternoon in practice and that we haven't really talked a lot about that over the course of this season. So I think the very fact that drivers were talking about, you know, the lack of grip and, and the high deg very early in the weekend suggested that they knew it was going to be a real talking point in the race. And with these tyres, 
you need to have that feel. We used to talk a lot about how Checo used to have this feel for the, the older generation of tyres or the previous generation of tyres. Mm-hmm. And I think these just operate in a slightly different way. And I think drivers like Lando, um, who have been able to adapt to this new generation very quickly, were able to exploit that in this Grand Prix. And I think we saw that. You talked about that cutting that seven-second deficit down as well. Um, Lando's just driving at such a high level his demeanour has dramatically changed from that of the start of the year and I think you can always tell with him he's not very good at poker in that sense because if he's happier the car is performing much better and if he's less happy the car is performing and he doesn't understand why it isn't so yeah I think it's a really <clears throat> I think it's a really fun time for to be a McLaren driver right now I think you saw the real clear difference between what experience counts for at Suzuka between those two drivers but the very fact that they obviously got both got on the podium just shows fundamentally what a great car that is and on that I mean this was a very it ultimately ended up being fairly straightforward weekend for McLaren they weren't sure exactly what the advantage was going to look like optimistic they were going to be second fastest qualifying certainly showed that in the race I think even they were a little bit surprised that well I like that Andrea Stella after the race actually said he was surprised by how close he was to Red Bull in a positive way and I was like I don't know if you check the gaps but and I think Lando Norris said the same but they were a bit closer than they expected and a bit further away from everyone else than they expected so relatively straightforward but even going into the weekend really prepared save two sets of hard ties which ended up being the preferred strategy because the level degradation as you mentioned they experienced pretty well executed in terms of strategy pit stops didn't waste too much time around team orders after the first stops when it was clear Lando Norris was faster I mean how positive an overall sign is a race like this for McLaren when suddenly we're talking about maybe McLaren next year being that second fastest team kind of out of the box and being the de facto Red Bull challenger I think it's great that you've raised this point about the operational side and and thinking about strategy so early in the weekend often we see teams um Aston Martin might be a good shout for this year they start the year with a really strong car but operationally because they haven't been fighting at the sharp end they there's those kind of little gaps where maybe they just don't make the most of it and you know Monaco is a really good example Fernando could have won there you know if they'd been operationally super super sharp What's really impressive with McLaren is they've had this period of time early in the year where they were really struggling. Obviously, the last few years haven't been where they'd want to be. The kind of the the constant upward trajectory has kind of tailed off a little bit. But on a weekend like this, where they'd come in with a car they knew was going to be good around here, they were able to execute the perfect race. You've just listed off all the factors of what they did right in that race. They had the confidence to to save those sets of tyres and be confident that they would have a good setup for the race. They had, this just shows the underlying confidence the team has, it shows the drivers have. And you look at, listen to um, Andrea Stella talk, and I think there were some people outside um, of the team who thought, oh, it was a bit of a strange move to, to promote a technical person into the lead role as team principal. But actually, it's been a, it's playing a blinder really so far because He's got the team working for him. He can communicate effectively with them. He also is a really good person. So like actually in terms of actually managing a team, he's great at that. And technically he's brilliant. So actually what McLaren have done and Zach Brown have done is very, very impressive. They bought two very strong upgrades that have delivered the package that they've said. And you talked about McLaren potentially being Red Bull's greatest threat. No one would have said that kind of at the start of this year when you had Ferrari and Mercedes in that ballpark and Aston Martin. So... This example, this race weekend in Japan, is a really good example of what McLaren could do next year on a very consistent basis, based on the fact they've had very few opportunities where they knew they were going to be good, and they've taken them every single time. It has been really 
promising not only for fans of McLaren, obviously, but just for the prospect of, you know, for a lot of this year, we've had kind of five cars in the, I, I say front runners loosely because there's really only one front runner, but in that larger group, it's it's been almost half the grid often. We've got an interesting situation with Aston Martin, which we'll talk about in a second, but it's really promising in that regard. Get ready, race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart-pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. So whether you're a fan of super speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at pass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast. That was McLaren pretty much showing up the podium fairly easily in a straightforward way. The battle just behind them was a little bit more complicated. Ferrari, I think on balance, was the quicker car, but not absolutely fast enough not to be fighting with Mercedes. Let's look at, I guess, the alternative strategy here. Some drivers, yes, used two mediums and one hard. That was more about the allocations they saved. Very few used only one stop. One of them was George Russell, went from mediums to hards, swapped about the middle of the race. Optimistic, I think it's fair to say, considering all the reasons we've mentioned, degradation looked really high. Also, I thought interesting was the execution here, though. You know, if you're going to do a one-stop in a race like this, you've got to be very careful with your tyres, play it really safe, try and race your own race. Had two relatively lengthy battles with his own teammate. Team orders were sort of instigated, and then there was a little bit of hesitation around all of that entire situation. He didn't ultimately make up fourth place. In fact, he finished at the back of this pack with Ferrari. It never seemed likely to work, but how much is execution to blame here, do you think, in the way they tried to run this one-stop race? Yeah, I think execution is to blame massively. I think George Russell is in an interesting spot at the minute. He's obviously come off the Singapore Grand Prix and he had that mistake that cost him a podium. He's obviously not performed as strongly relative to Lewis Hamilton this year, and that will irritate him, frankly. And I think then you go into races like this where Mercedes are kind of in that weird realm of probably the fourth best team just behind Ferrari and McLaren and therefore you probably need to, if you want to have a bit of excitement, you probably have to try something different. So I can see why George would have probably been very pro the one stop. But the, the thing is, as I mentioned with his fight with Lewis, I think it's just a racing driver mentality that you, you're with Lewis and you're battling him. And the sensible thing to actually beat him is not to fight him. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds really silly, but that, like you were saying, execution, that was the thing to do. And he just couldn't resist it. Because I think there was also that internal battle between who is top dog in that team. And so I suppose George has to prove two things. He has to prove that he is the the future for that team. He is the, the driver that they should be back in already now, even though they've got a seven-time more champion in the other car. But also he has to get the best result. And I think often, as particularly in this scenario, both you can't prove both those things in one go. Or you prove it by executing the strategy that you said you were going to do. And that is how the team view it. You are, you know, you've thought about this race. But at the moment, because George has had such a difficult season and a frustrating season, I'm kind of not surprised that he just couldn't resist fighting Lewis. And you're right because of that. Because... I, I I don't know exactly how hard he would have pushed the tyres, but he almost certainly would have put it, pushed it to the point where I don't think he would have run out of them effectively as 
quickly as he did in this Grand Prix if he hadn't fought Lewis. And then he might have been in a better spot. I mean, it's all, you know, ifs, what's, maybes. But I think that he didn't execute that race. And I think when he goes back and he looks at it, that will be the greatest frustration, I think, from that from that Grand Prix for him. So funny sort of coda to that story as well, which was, it was all about teamwork, wasn't it? All of the drivers said it. Lewis Hamilton and George Russell both said it, including when they were fighting each other, which is of no benefit to the team. Uh, the team asked Lewis Hamilton to give George Russell the DRS in the final five or so laps battling Carlos Sainz. I think Carlos said it himself and Hamilton hinted afterwards that everyone had got this idea because of Singapore, because of the way that Carlos Sainz had won that race, wasn't worth anything to Russell. It was passed almost immediately. The first lap, I think, that they tried it uh, and he sunk to the bottom. I mean, it's an admirable bit of teamwork, but it, it just seems like it was just a little bit too ad hoc and not particularly Mercedes, I, I couldn't help but think. Particularly in a battle with Ferrari, you would kind of assume that Mercedes is the cooler head prevailing here. Now, Lewis Hamilton did undercut Carlos Sainz, so they did get one car ahead of a Ferrari, so that is a positive. But just generally, it feels a little bit like, I don't know if this is an extension of Mercedes and just not getting the, the performance that they've been expecting in the second half of the year, but didn't feel very assured to me. No, I'd agree with that. I think when you're not used to fighting in the heat of battle, I think you probably pick up a little bit of rust and I just think that yes they did make that good call with the strategy because I think fundamentally they know exactly what they're doing but I think in other moments you might feel like taking the slightly riskier approach because it's because you're lacking ultimate true performance is worth it and Mercedes haven't really had to make that kind of call for a very long time because for so long they've had the best car I think that I didn't really understand the whole DRS thing because George's tyres, even with DRS, he was always going to be at risk, even if Lewis was helping him. So all you're really doing is risking Lewis, who Lewis would have been comfortable if they just let them race anyway, because he'd had, I think, a two-second gap before he had to drop back into George's DRS. So you're actually putting the wider team at risk by doing that for what could potentially be a, obviously a bigger gain if you do keep both cars behind. You said already that the Ferrari was fundamentally a very fast race car anyway, so it was already going to be a difficult feat to achieve. So yeah, I think it kind of, it did kind of, not it wasn't desperation, but it, it did feel like they just rolled the dice a little bit in a scenario where they didn't, they just ultimately didn't really need to. Yeah, interesting just that performance gap as well. The fact that Ferrari seemed pretty reasonably good at managing its tyres here and it had to use two mediums as opposed to Mercedes using two hards and performance through the S's, which was absolutely dependent. Mercedes just didn't have the stability there and that kind of hurt them. It, it looked like they'd lost one of the advantages they were able to count on early in the year. And I guess in a weird way, that's sort of positive for Ferrari fans as well. It does feel like in the last couple of weeks, they've found something and everyone has been waiting for Ferrari to find something at least. And it seems like they've got that and we'll wait and see what they come up with next year. Part of the reason for this gamble as well was that Mercedes looked at the field around them and said the worst that they could finish was as the, the fourth quickest team. Behind Ferrari, couldn't do any worse, which doesn't say a lot about Aston Martin and Fernando Alonso. It's been a while since we've talked about Fernando being in contention for podiums. Quite a while, in fact. I know he scored one only, I think it was in the Netherlands, wasn't it? But uh, that, even that, in, upon retrospect, feels like it was a little bit more good fortune and just Fernando Alonso having a very good go than absolutely about the car. His race was kind of interesting. Ultimately, he didn't really make up any positions. Made up one, I suppose. Then Sergio Perez crashed out. That gained him an extra place. Uh, and he sort of stayed exactly where he was, one of the few drivers to start on the softs uh, in, the, in the top half of the grid anyway. 
very early stop onto the hards. And then we got some classic Fernando Alonso radio, which I know he loves to complain about when people bring it up, but it is a little bit of an insight in the way he was thinking, a little bit of frustration there. I mean, I guess what I'm asking here is, are we past the point of pretending that we're now at tracks that don't suit the Aston Martin car or tracks where other teams have taken a step forward? Uh, Are we confident now saying that Aston Martin actually is probably fifth quickest and and just scrapping for points? I think Fernando Alonso's realised this uh, already, Mm. that that's probably where they are based on those radio messages. And yeah, I think it's probably as far back as Canada, maybe things started to tail off a little bit and they might have had a few peaks like that Netherlands race. But I th- yeah, I think those heady days of being the second best on the on the grid are, are long gone. I think that they've been outdeveloped by Ferrari, uh, obviously outdeveloped by McLaren. I think that Mercedes are kind of, they're really a difficult team to read, but they've been there or thereabouts and then their consistency experience has just helped them be ahead of Aston. You know, on one side, you can't, be too hard on them because they were seventh last year mm. if they end up shaking out being the fifth that's still a step forward but I think in Formula 1 when you make those kind of steps like they made at the start of the year and you haul yourself into such an impressive position you have to be disappointed you have to be frustrated that you've then effectively lost three spots so in gaining five they've lost th- they've gone back three <laughs> and I think internally they'll they that won't Lawrence Stroll won't be happy with that because you've almost given him a bit of the carrot and then you've ripped it away from him halfway through the year and he won't he won't he just won't be happy with that kind of form I think that I think it's very interesting that Fernando is becoming more vocal on the radio because even in the difficult days earlier in the season when they didn't get everything right he was like level-headed and he was cool and he was like playing the team game but more of those messages are creeping through and if they're creeping through, it's because he's frustrated by what he's seeing, what he's feeling, what they're doing. And I think that's quite a difficult spot for Aston Martin if you're the team principal and the engineers and stuff. Because a frustrated Fernando Alonso is only going to heap the pressure on everyone in that team. And that's not what they need right now. They need calm, clear heads to try and understand what was going wrong. So I'm really interested to see how the rest of the season plays out, but what impact that has on next year. Because what you don't want Aston Martin to, or what Aston Martin won't want to happen, is to become one of those teams where they start the season strongly and then they disappear. And that is just what they, that's what they do. That's just what, you know, we've seen that over the past. Red Bull used to be a team, which I think they used to start poorly and Mm. then they used to finish strongly. So it could just be that Aston Martin are going to fall into this routine. So I suppose that's the interesting thing. They are the fifth best now. That's still a step forward. They're still well clear of the rest of the midfield. But I think they need to understand why they were able to start so strongly and then why they don't seem to to understand why the upgrades that they've brought haven't really delivered. That's probably the most concerning thing of everything. Yeah, I think the sign for me came after qualifying. It's something we've heard often before, mostly in his Alpine and to a lesser extent his McLaren years, which was my qualifying 10th. My lap was great, but you won't talk about it because it was 10th, which is subtly pushing it onto the car, isn't it? Like that was a classic Fernando Alpine move. And now that that's starting to creep in, like you say, I think it is a signifier of something deeper there. It does feel a little bit like the honeymoon is over. And there is an irony. I think you're absolutely right. They've gained so much year on year, but because of the way they've done it, it actually feels like they've lost, which is just, it's very Formula One to be in that position, I think. So 
this was a little bit of a window, I think, into that thinking, and we'll wait and see. Some other unusual tracks coming up, I suppose. We don't know how they're going to go. Before we wrap this up, Lawrence, let's talk about the last points-paying places, which went to Alpine. Thankful for Alpine, presumably. Alpine would be grateful to get two cars into the points, but couldn't end without a little bit of controversy. It was Esteban Ocon ahead of Pierre Gasly. Despite the fact Ocon had a, a puncture early, had to have a, a pit stop at the end of the first lap, then effectively one stop to the end uh, on two sets of hard tyres because of that very early pit stop. Was swapped ahead of Pierre Gasly, though. Gasly had been ahead right up until the final lap. He was trying to pass Fernando Alonso. He was on a conventional two-stop strategy with two hard tyres, was the faster driver. Alpine called late and said it's time to swap. The team says that's kind of standard practice because, you know, when you swap a car to let them have a go, you swap them back at the end. Gasly, on the other hand, says he was clearly faster and he was. What do you make of the way this situation has been managed, particularly given this hasn't been a particularly smooth or straightforward year for this team? No. I think when you've got a driver reacting as Gasly did when he was told the uh, he was given the call and then he's bashing the steering wheel, waving his arms in the air, regardless of what the decision was, you can't say that was a good one, right? Because the driver has acted <laughs> in a way where something has been amiss, something is, something's gone wrong. I think that what is clear is they hadn't decided this pre-race. What is clear is Pierre wasn't expecting this because even if, even if they'd been told to do it and he disagreed with it, he wouldn't have reacted in the way that he did. So clearly Pierre is annoyed at the way it played out. He's irritated by the way it played out. I think that for the small, you know, I think it's different when you're maybe fighting for a podium but when you're fighting for slightly smaller points, I just don't understand why it's worth irking your drivers for such a small thing. I, and I think at the moment, like you said, Pierre was the fastest driver in that Grand Prix. He had effectively done the better job. Um, I know Esteban was unlucky early on and got the puncture, but the re- that's just racing. So the reality is Pierre had the better race. And I just think it was a very strange thing to do to really destabilize your driver or one of your drivers just to potentially is potentially you're keeping the other one happy potentially you're doing what you think is the right thing i think what is clear here is it's not clear and that's what <laughs> is frustrating about the whole thing like there is no real clear evidence and no one came out straight after and really gave a real clear understanding uh, explanation sorry of of what they did it and why and i think that is the greatest concern and you mentioned that it's not being the great greatest year for Alpine this is just the latest in a long chapter of strange decisions frustrating decisions destabilizing decisions essentially and I guess you could argue that if the team was in a more stable happier place this kind of thing just wouldn't have happened so it just it just reflects where Alpine are at the moment just a little bit lost a little bit frustrated in transition you know I hate using that word but you know they sometimes (laughs) like to use it um so yeah it was a it's a strange one and what I'm interested to to do is to talk to both of them to Pierre and Esteban in Qatar and some of the team to have an understanding of what they discussed afterwards I hope they don't say oh we've kept it internally what I really want to know is Mm. what exactly has gone on because clearly something is amiss yeah it's a difficult line to argue in a race that featured many team orders up and down the field that kind of made sense. It's difficult to argue, as Alpine's tried to, that this was for the greater good of the team when the points return was a, was absolutely the same. And as you say, clearly upset one driver in a way that doesn't tally with this idea that it 
kind of makes logical sense or internal sense even to the way that Alpine is operating. So I think that is a little bit, yes, problematic for the way the team's operating at the moment when, well, the result would have been the same. Or the result was the same at the front. Like you said, results been the same for much of this year, but that's okay because the championship had to be won somehow. May as well have been won emphatically by Max Verstappen. Uh, Lawrence, it was a pleasure to talk to you about the Japanese Grand Prix this week. Oh, thanks so much, Michael. I love doing this, Shay, so thanks so much for having me on. There's no universe in which Max Verstappen wasn't winning this race. And it was a fitting episode of domination with which to claim Red Bull Racing's Constructors title in what will likely go down as statistically the most dominant season in F1 history. But first, the Drivers' Championship at the next race in Qatar. Thanks very much to Lawrence Barreto for joining me to debrief the Japanese Grand Prix. You can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Laminato and I'll be back in a couple of weeks for the Qatar Grand Prix. should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run, where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals that you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you.